Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back to BungaCast. It's Thursday, the 10th of February. My name is Alex Hochuli, and uh, BungaCast is, as well as myself, of course, very much the wonderful George Hoare. Hello, wonderful George. Gorgeous George. Thanks. Thanks. Maybe there's other alliterations. Um, now you don't also, want to be gorgeous George. That's George Galloway. Oh, yeah, that's true. Also, Gregarious is George. The global, is the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. In that's case, true. Uh, that, yeah, you, I mean, I, I forgot to say that this time. Yeah. We can introduce this as a team. But yeah. yes, I, I will take um, Gregarious or Gorgeous. I think Gorgeous, yeah, Gorgeous George. Yeah. Why and not? Uh, Fabulous or Fatuous Philip, uh, Philip Cunliffe. Fabulous gonna... PH. Yeah. <laughs> um, Phil is going to tell us who we're speaking to today. Yeah. So excitingly, um, we're speaking to Michael Lind, who is, well, he'll be familiar to some of our um, listeners who've been with us for a while because we had a reading club on his book last year, um, specifically his 2020 book, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. And if you haven't read it already um, to any new listeners or listeners who missed it the first time around, I'd strongly recommend it. So Michael Lind is a, um, well, as you'll um as you'll uh, hear from the um, discussion itself. He's a heterodox thinker who doesn't easily fit in um, on either the right or the left. Um, And at the moment, I mean, he's a prolific author and some of the other books he's done include um, a 2012 book, Land of Promise, An Economic History of the United States. And he's also written books on strategy, on American politics based in Texas, because he is himself a Texan. And currently, he is um, a professor, professor of practice at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. And not one of these, wanted... one of these professors of theory, one of the theories of praxis. Exactly. <laughs> not praxis, practice. Um, he's, um, he's been someone we've been keen to get on for a while, um, not, only off the, not only off the back of the new class of book, which I, I mean, I really enjoyed. And it's actually thanks to George who, um, who pushed it for the podcast and also a colleague of mine here at Kent who was um, promoting, who said how good it was on Twitter. And both of those things propelled me to, um, to take a look and it was really brilliant. So very glad to have Michael Lind on. I'm glad yeah. that my recommendation you to take a look i mean that's that is very heartening um but i'm going to be the you know that the house pedant today the title the subtitle of the book is saving democracy from the metropolitan elite not the managerial elite so i was going i was going by the american title my apologies to to listeners and to pedants everywhere but it was published with a slightly separate (laughs) subtitle in the uk reflecting i suppose different um perhaps reflecting different priorities Mm. See that mm. my pedantic point brought out, and it's a somewhat interesting one that you actually made. And um, but we are we are for listeners in in the UK, so we will be saying Labour with a with a U in, even though you, it sounds the same as Labor. without. But, um, but yeah, I, I think the discussion. I mean, Michael Lynn's work specifically, I guess, is interesting in light of some other discussions that we've had on this podcast, writings that are going on elsewhere around the role of kind of a managerial elite, right? I mean, we've spoken about the PMC, yeah. the professional managerial class loads on this podcast, um, have had um, Catherine Liu who's written a book on it and discussed it in various other guises as well. Yeah. And it's, it's a thing still we a keep sticky discussion. To. Yeah. And it's a sticky discussion because it's still, it's hard to gain real clarity on exactly the entire contours of that class, who's in, who's out, what its political role is, how much self consciousness it has. Is it actually a new elite or is it a middle strata 
these are yeah, so michael i think michael has perhaps one of the more um one of the more kind of sophisticated theoretical takes which is able to account for their for the particular position they they occupy um and why they um why they are kind of politically configured the way they do and i think it's you know so there are very there are excellent accounts of um behavior of this managerial lead pmc whatever you want to call them um but kind of explaining their how they've developed out of a particular political economy and out of a particular state structure his is one of the more convincing and interesting accounts I'm, i don't i mean i don't fully i don't fully agree with it but it's um certainly worth worth delving into and thinking about more yeah and i guess the most compelling thing you can say for it is that or in justification of this approach is that contemporary capitalism is incredibly bureaucratic and you know has become so over the course of the 20th century. And so how do you account for this mass class of bureaucrats, not in the just in the public sector, but in the private sector too? Um, and does that have its own interest? And I think that's basically the core of the question. You know, what do you do with this bureaucracy? Should you be against it? Should you ignore it, et cetera? Um, so I'm interested to hear uh, your discussion. Well, spoiler, I've already heard it, but we're going to discuss <laughs> what we've learned uh, after we listen to Phil uh, do his interview with Michael Lind. So what you're about to hear now, uh, if you are not a subscriber, you're going to hear a good chunk of the interview, um, but subscribers will hear the last part of the interview and our after party where we critically analyze and discuss what we've heard, um, try to bring up other aspects which might have been left out, and, uh, and generally try to kind of summarize everything that we've just heard. So uh, if you're interested in that, that's at patreon.com slash bungacast. And if you're a $5 subscriber, you'll get these sorts of bonus episodes. You'll get original episodes. You get our uh, regular sort of three articles uh, on current affairs. You'll get our alpha bonus bonus where we respond to your questions and criticisms. Um, we'll have guests on there and so on. And if you subscribe for $10 a month, you have access to our reading club. Uh, people might have seen the 2022 syllabus that we've put together arrayed around three different themes, emergency politics, first of all, secondly, uh, cynicism and trust, and the third one being techno or neo-feudalism. Um, so the three more most important themes we believe that we need to unpick and discuss to understand the world in 2022 emerging out of the pandemic. Um, so if you're interested in that, join up. We also are having local reading clubs. There have been a whole bunch of them formed in cities uh, in Europe and North America, with a bunch of people also looking to set up theirs uh, in other places. And so if you join the Patreon, we can put you all in touch with each other so you can have face-to-face uh, local reading clubs to follow along with our uh, our virtual one that we do here. Anyway, I'm going to pass over to Phil now, who uh, will be talking to Michael Lind. So welcome, Michael, to the podcast. Delighted to have you with us. Thank you for having me. I wanted to get going, first of all, by asking a bit about your own political background and your political development, because my understanding is that your views have changed um, over the last um, 20, 30 years or so. And you describe yourself as a democratic nationalist. Um, if that's accurate. And I wondered what it meant in the American context specifically, especially because nationalist has very particular connotations in the European context. In terms of my own background, I would describe myself as a New Deal diaper baby. I come from a a minor political family in Texas uh, that was associated with Lyndon Johnson and with uh, Barbara Jordan and uh, others. Uh, Within the Southwest and the South, 
the New Deal was simultaneously a modernizing project of a national developmental state with rural electrification and islands and and building uh, all all sorts of infrastructure and industry. And uh, at the same time, it was a pro-labor, integrationist, pro-civil rights project. So I've always been somewhat orthogonal to what might be called the East Coast views, both liberal and conservative, because uh, uh, the experience of the 20th century in the South and the West of going from a agrarian peripheral society uh, to becoming an industrialized society uh, and overcoming an apartheid plantation-based social order, this is quite different from the experience in the Northeast and the Midwest where the industrialization took place in the 19th century. And it was simply a matter of redistributing power to existing uh, organized labor uh, in the Northeast. So that's kind of a long way of saying that I I think I've been fairly consistent ever since I was a six-year-old rooting for uh, Hubert Humphrey in 1968. That particular combination of of, uh, of of policies of an activist nation state uh, and of uh, progressive social reform pretty much ceased to exist as an option uh, in the United States in the 70s and 80s. And so over, over most of my political career, my background was in foreign policy. Uh, I was uh, what was called a Cold War liberal. And as long as the Cold War was raging, uh, I sided with the neoconservatives and, and the right more than the uh, left at that point. With the end of the Cold War uh, and the capture of the Republican Party for a decade or two, it's, it's losing its grip now, but a distinctive kind of Southern neo-Confederate right captured the Republican Party. Uh, most of the politicians converts. They had been reactionary segregationist Democrats. Who are you thinking of when you say this neo, neo-Confederate neo right? Uh, Tom DeLay, uh, my, my fellow Texan, a uh, uh, House leader, uh, Dick Armey from Dallas. Uh, they dominated Congress in the 1990s. Uh, George W. Bush, even though he was uh, born in New York to a transplanted Connecticut family, uh, he's, he's a real Texan. He grew up kind of West Texas uh, frat boy. Uh, And uh, since this was the enemy of my political faction, uh, of the pro-Roosevelt, you know, pro-Johnson New Dealers, uh, I I wrote a book about this called Made in Texas, the the Southern Takeover of American Politics, where I, I tried to explain this to the American intelligentsia, which was mostly born in the tri-state area of of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, sometimes it seems like. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and I think my background, you know, gives me a certain insight into what's going on uh, in the United States today, because I think the real parallel is not Weimar Germany in the 1920s, this is nonsense. Yeah. Uh, it, it's the New South between the end of Reconstruction and the uh, New Deal and the Civil Rights era. Uh, And during that period, you had a a very small, exclusive oligarchy. They were not necessarily reactionaries, 
uh, in terms of economics. They wanted to modernize the region, uh, but they saw cheap labor and, and an absence of union power and oligarchic control uh, as the basis that was their modernizing strategy of investing foreign capital, foreign being from New York and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and London for the most part. Uh, so, uh, and this oligarchic system in which uh, very small groups of the gentry, the bourbon ruling class as they were known yeah. in Dallas and Houston and, uh, and New Orleans and, and other Southern capitals inevitably produced uh, demagogues demagogic populists uh, as a response to this. And so like so, Huey Long being the big name, I guess. Yeah, Huey Long is the best remembered. He's the least typical. Uh, the vast majority of them were charlatans. Uh, and the ones who were not charlatans were failures, but most of them were frauds. Uh, they, they, they were almost all born to middle-class families, as was Huey Long. That's typical of, of populist demagogues. They tend to come from the middle or the uh, upper classes, uh, but most of them upon achieving power either simply created their own corrupt personal family patronage networks. And that was true of uh, uh, James and Miriam Ferguson, Ma and Paul Ferguson, the populist governors of uh, Texas in, in the World War I, 1920s era, uh, or they just sold out to the corporations and, and you know, the, the rich landowners who ran their, their Southern state. Uh, uh, Long was unique uh, because uh, he, he actually figured out a, a way to finance a counter-establishment, uh, which was very Peronist, uh, after, like Juan Peron. He had what was called the deduct box, a certain percentage of every state uh, employee's check was deducted <laughs> and sent to a slush fund uh, at the disposal of governor and then Senator Long. Uh, and in addition, he went into business with the Chicago mafia to have uh, slot machines distributed in uh, Louisiana uh, and, and had a piece of the, the cut. Now, having said this, I have some mixed feelings for Huey Long because he did great things for the people of Louisiana. He built hospitals, he built you know, highways and farm to market roads and so on. And the oligarchy was so brutal and ruthless that you know, really I'm not apologizing for it, but he, he, he's the only populist to accomplish anything and he basically resorted to criminal methods. So, so that's, that brings me kind of to the theme of my book, The New Class War, where I argue that yeah. U.S. and to some degree, maybe Britain and other Western societies are trapped in this doom loop, which is familiar from the history of the American South and from the 20th century Latin America. Uh, and looking at interwar Germany and Italy, this is just, you might as well look at the Byzantine Empire, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating, particularly what you were talking about, the American South prior to the New Deal. And it's not a comparison. I mean, when you when you've discussed it just now, you know, the uh, so much of it resonates both with your analysis, but also with um, well, both with, you know, I think wider trends that you identify. But I just wanted to jump back a bit to your 
describing yourself as a democratic nationalist. So if you call yourself like a, you say kind of grows out of the support for the New Deal and the political, the politics that broke apart that um, oligarchic populist doom loop in the first quarter or first half of the um, 20th century in the southern US, then what does democratic nationalism mean further afield? And is there any individual or group or faction that you think stands for the kind of politics that you would support today? Well, of course, the New Deal and the civil rights movement were nationalist projects. They were trying to break down a, a regime of apartheid and of uh, low-wage, low-tech equilibrium uh, within a section of the United States. So they were both modernizing and nationalist. Uh, and I use the term nationalist. I don't like making this academic distinction between patriotism and nationalism. Yeah. Uh, because for one thing, patria means fatherland. So if you say, I'm not a nationalist, I'm a fatherlandist, well, it's a distinction without a difference. Uh, nationalism is, is the idea that you have a nation state in that, uh, and it can come in illiberal racist versions, uh, but it can also come in liberal inclusive versions where you have a shared minimum common culture, including a common language. Uh, but that also can coexist. I defend what I call democratic pluralism in, in the new class war, and we can talk about that. Uh, so, so nationalism comes in various varieties and Jacobin style integral status nationalism is one. <clears throat> Hitlerian Furkisho racist nationalism is another. Uh, but particularly for those on the center left, uh, I like to say that in the United States, uh, the Republicans, at least until recently, loved the nation and hated the state, and the left loved the state and, and rejected the nation. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think, well, it's a nation state, it's going to remain one. Uh, so you might as well have a nation statist party. So that's what I mean by by democratic nationalism. I, one way my views have changed over the 30 years I spent, mostly in Washington, but some in New York, was in the 1990s, I was much more uh, <clears throat> favorable towards kind of technocratic reform. Yeah. Uh, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, Herbert Crowley, uh, reform from above. <clears throat> I, I think if, having spent 30 years in the belly of the beast, uh, it has radicalized it somewhat. Uh, I think unless you have what uh, Bernard Crick called uh, extra parliamentary organizations like labor unions and, and sometimes religious congregations and others, uh, then you, you cannot count on the benevolence of an enlightened elite. So I have, my views have evolved uh, in, in some ways, but I've always been committed to this combination of an activist developmental state, particularly an industrial policy, which I've written a great deal about. Uh, and and it, there's a military realistic uh, component to it, uh, but also uh, promoting consensus-based politics and class collaboration, which my friends on the Marxist left don't like, but I don't see what the alternative is. And uh, is... 
you've mentioned, so I know in some of the pieces you've written for the tablet, you've mentioned a few Republican congressmen um, or senators uh, favorably um, for their focus on working class aspirations and trying to kind of cultivate a new model of working class politics, who collaborated um, with Bernie Sanders in some congressional maneuvering. And I wondered, do those individuals, do they embody the kind of politics that you would aspire to today? Well, yes and no. They uh, and what, the ones I think you have in mind are Josh Hawley, senator from yeah. Missouri, and, and Florida Senator Marco Rubio, and some others. Now, uh, and they they've really broken with this kind of Reagan Thatcher orthodoxy on on many ways. Uh, Hawley co-sponsored with Bernie Sanders. Uh, a bill to raise the stimulus money uh, for American households. Uh, Rubio has come out in defense of striking uh, union workers yeah. uh, recently um, on one occasion. Uh, now, are they consistent? Well, you know, they're politicians and, and they're one of one, each one is one of 100 people in the U.S. Senate. So they have to choose their battles. Uh, they're, they're, the really interesting thing is the, the intellectual turmoil on the right, uh, which uh, the intellectual right in the U.S. is much more interesting at this point than the intellectual left, which essentially, apart from a kind of uh, left in exile and podcasts and Substack, has pretty much been co-opted as a PR or get out the vote wing of Democratic National Committee, in my opinion. There's, it's, there's just very little going on there intellectually. Uh, uh, and meanwhile, the old Reaganite consensus has just collapsed. Yeah. And what had been this fusionist conservatism is breaking up into its components, libertarians, populists, religious traditionalists, and so on. There are some attempts to cobble together a new consensus on the right under the names of the new right or national conservatism. Uh, I don't think they really work because I think they paper over really, really deep differences. Uh, so I think it's kind of premature. But uh, now, naturally, the left is viewing this just as it because they don't they don't they don't know any history. The only history yeah. is is uh, PBS and NBC uh, documentaries about World War II and the rise of Hitler. I mean, that, that's literally the only they don't know their own country's history. Yeah, uh, it's probably true in Britain and Europe too, right? It certainly is. Yeah, it's, they can tell you all about the Weimar Republic and and the rise of the Nazis, but they can't tell you about Salisbury or Disraeli or any yeah. or, or Grover Cleveland in the U.S. Uh, so everything is seen through this neo-Nazi lens. Uh, I think the best way to understand this this new right is it's it's actually a return to Nixonism uh, because Nixon sought to create an enduring national majority uh, by moving the Republican party, which had been the party of the Northeastern Anglo-American Protestant business elite uh, to you know, get more of the democratic working class. Yep. Uh, and, and with some success and arguably Reagan's coalition really built on Nixon's. I think this, the Republicans took a detour into the Deep South 
under the bushes, and they were in danger for a while of becoming kind of a southern ghetto regional party. Uh, Trump, whatever you think of him, and I don't think a whole lot of most of my references to him have been negative, but uh, he did pick the lock of the Electoral College, and he did, and he was very Nixonian. His his base was uh, ex-democratic, often unionized workers in in the Midwest. Uh, He had he he had appeal to working class Hispanics and even African Americans. Yeah. There, his share of that, those votes grew uh, between 2016 and 2020. Uh, so, so I think the, the, there was always this Nixonian strain. And so how would, how would I dis- distinguish Nixonianism from Reaganism? Nixonianism was realist in foreign policy. Because of the Vietnam War, there was a sense that the U.S. had overreached. Oh. And Nixon and Kissinger were concerned with with limiting U.S. commitments. And they simply took for granted a multipolar world had emerged yeah. after, after World War II. And so you have a more modest and selective uh, foreign policy. At the same time, with the recovery of Germany and Japan, uh, Nixon was economic nationalist. Uh, and, and you had the beginnings of kind of industrial policy at that point. I think the end of the Cold War uh, the wars in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia and, and Iraq, and the temporary collapse of the German and Japanese economies in the 1990s convinced a lot of people, not just in the US, around the world, that that whole Nixonian narrative had been absurdly pessimistic. Yeah. That in fact, the US was the greatest hegemonic power since the Roman Empire and would be for generations to come. Uh, that we were moving away from economic nationalism and industrial policy uh, to this free global market. Yeah. And it took the uh, catastrophes of self, the self-inflicted catastrophe of the Iraq war and these other wars, which uh, Obama uh, began from the U.S. perspective uh, in Libya and Syria, uh, plus the collapse of the world economy and the Great Recession. And now the supply chain crisis, which has exposed the fragility of globalization. Yeah. So uh, maybe this detour from reality is, is coming to an end. Uh, and, uh, but I don't think it, it means we're facing white nationalist dictatorship. I think on the right, it means a more modest, sober, uh, somewhat uh, less interventionist and, and somewhat more economically left, quote unquote, policy. So, uh, and one, if, if I can just add, sure. uh, you, you have intellectuals, particularly the, tr- the trad cats, the Catholic intellectuals, yeah. who, who, are, who are breaking with the, the Reagan Thatcher consensus by going back to Catholic teachings on, on social issues and unions and things like that. Uh, but, but I do think that if, 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 you know, you have a bunch of intellectuals saying, well, let's reject John Locke, let's reject the Reformation, let's go back to first principles. In practice, I think the politicians in Congress and the Republican Party will just go back to Eisenhower and Nixon. I mean, I don't think they're yeah. <laughs> yeah. for the Reformation. <laughs> no, indeed. Um, though, I mean, it'd be interesting to pick up some of the 
Tradka thinkers, um, perhaps perhaps um, a bit later. What I would uh, what I'd we've kind of been skirting around it, but I'd like to get into it now is to talk in a bit more detail about the model that you propose in um, your book, The New Class War Saving Democracy from the Metropolitan Elite. And you've got two, so you've got two core actors in there, the overclass, as you call them, as the, the working class, and they're dispersed across a hubs and heartland model geographically. So I was wondering if you could just briefly lay that out for us before we um, get into the detail of some of the, of how the model works and we, how you see it um, unfolding in the future? Well, I don't claim to be uh, original. I, I build on uh, the thinking of uh, James Burnham, who was an ex-Trotskyist radical who uh, broke with communism in the late 1930s and 1940s over a theoretical issue. He was still on the left, but, but uh, he and uh, other Marxists, including a, a heterodox Marxist named Bruno Ritzi, uh, Milovan Gilas later in Yugoslavia uh, argued that Marx had been right that bourgeois owner-operator capitalism was fading away, and and you're getting these you know massive industrial firms and and you know uh, farmers were turning into urban industrial workers, and there was this class polarization. But Marx so said uh, Burnham and Ritzi and Gilas. They, they had, he had been wrong saying that uh, it was, the successor was capitalism uh, or even industrial capitalism. Rather, it was what Burnham uh, called managerialism after Adolf Burley and Gardner Means in their book on the separation of ownership and control in, uh, in U.S. corporations. Uh, and what uh, Ritzy called the bureaucratization of the world. And so in some senses, I'm, I'm, I kind of regret not following Ritzy's rhetoric rather than, than Burnham's because I am talking about bureaucracy. That is right. what you see simultaneously in the early 20th century is the replacement of small intimate charities by gigantic bureaucratic philanthropic uh, organizations, the Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, you get the giant bureaucratic managerial corporation, you get enormous bureaus uh, and agencies uh, in, in all Western democracies, but it all happens in all developed countries. Uh, and so the, the basic question is, uh, do the old models of principal and agent really work? And, and there's a kind of fundamentalist Marxism that says all of these vast armies of bureaucrats, uh, not only in the corporations, the corporate executives, uh, uh, but also these giant foundations that rich people fund, they are merely agents carrying out the will of the, the small group of rich capitalists in the 19th century sense, people yeah. who are investors, that you know, they live off their, their uh, investments uh, and their capital gains. And they're really running the country at this point, 0001%. Uh, and you get an equally naive kind of centrist liberal progressive model, which says uh, government officials uh, <clears throat> and government administrators in particular are passive uh, robotic 
you know, kind of mechanical implements of the will yeah. of the voters, right? And, and uh, you know, in my, my view, which, which is shared by, obviously, it's fairly familiar view among political sciences and social sciences, is that the people in these vast bureaucratic organizations, they're more than mere agents of principles, be they investors or voters. Yeah. You know, they have interests of their own. Uh, and I don't think you can describe those interests in a modern society in Europe or the U.S. or East Asia as simply capitalist interests. Yeah. Uh, the, the government in every OECD Western country uh, in East Asia, Japan, South Korea, that's about 40 to 50 percent of the economy. Yeah. The, the actual market economy is, uh, is less than 50% of the economy of a modern industrial nation state, even the ones we, we call them capitalist, yeah. but they're really mixed economies. Uh, and uh, and the, the other thing about this perspective, which I think is correct, is that you instead of there being a vertical distinction between government and the nonprofit sector and uh, uh, the commercial private sector, the fundamental division in modern uh, industrial societies is a horizontal one uh, between the overwhelmingly college-educated professionals and managers who inhabit these vast bureaucracies, public, private, nonprofit, and and certainly in the United States, it's a revolving door. People go back and forth. You know, you you work in the Obama White House, and then you become a, a senior executive at Lyft, and then you, you know, on the board of you know a major foundation, and then you yeah. come back to the Biden White House. Uh, so, so you know that you know to simply talk about this as the you know capitalism versus the state, or the market versus the state, yeah, or the independent nonprofit sector. Yeah, uh, I just think that's kind of an illusion. So my argument was that, uh, and here I wish I had been more clear because I realized after I published the book that most people think class is where you end up when you're 30 or 40 or 50. Uh, and I use a more ancient medieval, you know, Greco-Roman view of class. It's the class of your parents. Yeah. In other words, classes are made up of families. They're not made up of individuals. Uh, and individuals can change their classes, uh, but your class is pretty much where you were born. Uh, and this is, uh, much of my thinking has been rejected by a kind of Marxist left saying that, oh, but you're, you're confusing capitalists with uh, uh, the PMC. Yeah. Aaron Wright calls the professional managerial class. Well, we're talking about class in two different senses. I, I know a fair number of billionaires, I'm not going to, whose names you would recognize, I'm not going to cite them, uh, with, with, in every case, uh, they were born into professional, what I would call overclass families. In the U.S., we call them upper middle class. In Britain, you call them middle class, you know, essentially college-educated families. And they became rich. Uh, but they did, there are, there's, you know, there are the Walton heirs in the U.S., and there's, there's some inherited money. But, uh, and I know some of them too. Uh, so the ruling class of the United States is not heirs and heiresses 
who had cotillions when they were 16 and debutante balls and play polo, you know, in Newport in the summer. It's just not. Uh, it is mostly the dominant elite, including the plutocratic elite, are people from fairly conventional professional managerial families who lucked out with an IPO or a nice start. Uh, so, they, they, have, they may have a gazillion dollars. Yeah. But in class-wise, they they are they do not dress differently. They watch the same TV shows. You know, they're they're culturally part of the class that they were born into, and they're they're colleagues at school. So this is this anticipates what was going to be my question as to how far the overclass is actually a coalition of um, of I suppose you know the oligarchs, Silicon Valley elite types, along with. Um, Essentially, you know, they're bureaucratic managerial flunkies, whether that be in the civil service or um, large kind of NGOs, charities or the academy. So I suppose you've answered that. Um, and I wondered maybe if you could just. Well, well no, I, I, I can I can go into a little more detail. OK. Uh, and if you could also just talk about yeah. the hubs and heartland model, because I thought that was right. very useful and also strikingly um, familiar, I think. Uh, to countries outside the U.S. as well. Well, before I get in, into that model, uh, let me say, obviously, I recognize there are differences within the uh, overclass. Uh, I tend to think of these as factions, to use 18th century t- uh, terminology, rather than separate classes, because okay. uh, uh, you know, to some extent, there, there are hereditary differences. Uh, but in many cases, it just depends on where you went after you went to college. Uh, And the three major ones, I think, there's the managerial capitalist elite. Uh, Those are the executives and officers of the big uh, corporations uh, in in all industrial countries because of economies of scale, not because of some conspiracy. Uh, The the dominant firms tend to be oligopolies or in some cases, de facto monopolies. Uh, And that's your classic business elite, a big business elite. Uh, uh, You have a small business group, small business faction. They are less likely to be college educated, but in the U.S. they are still a majority college educated. And and, uh, they're not poor people. They're not working class people who make lots of money, although they may come from working class families sometimes. Uh, so they're fairly affluent, but they, they are a, a kind of bourgeoisie in the 19th century sense. A lot of owner operators of, of you know, like a trucking firm or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and trucking horses in the news, and, and thanks to Canada. Uh, the third major faction within the overclass, I, I would say, uh, are the professionals proper. Uh, and they too are kind of a relic of the 19th century. That is, you, you uh, practice a profession, you're self-employed, you have prestige, you make lots of money. And traditionally, these were the ministers and the professors and the, uh, uh, the, the medical doctors in the United States. Uh, what is happening is they are becoming uh, absorbed into the corporate managerial class, in some cases, and proletarianized in others. Yeah. So professors are gradually being stripped of all of their autonomy by American universities. And 
wokeness is just part of it. They're becoming cogs in an administrative machine, which may be better from the point where you have students. I'm a professor at the moment. I'm I'm agnostic about this. Yeah. Uh, Up until the last decade, most American physicians were self-employed. Now, most of them, as in Europe and the rest of the industrial world, are employees of hospitals. Yeah. Health maintenance organizations. So, so one of the tensions you see, uh, and I'm just talking about America here, is there is this resistance against the managerial elite proper from these other factions within the overclass, you know, who share a lot in common with socialism. Uh, the, being college educated is the main one. But, but the small business owners and the embattled professors and self-employed doctors and others, they see the giant corporations and their executives as the enemy. Yeah. Numbers of these people, uh, arguably the professionals who were largely uh, or they're disproportionately in the government, in the nonprofit, in the academic sectors. And I think that's true in Britain too. Uh, they're the base of the center left of the Democratic yeah. Party, maybe the Labor Party. Uh, and their, their hatred of the billionaires and like the big corporate CEOs is sincere. They, they, they fear they're going to lose their independence, yeah. be absorbed into these mega corporations. Uh, and, and that's true also of a lot of conservative Republicans. So some of the small business owners may be millionaires, but they do not see themselves as part of a coalition yeah. with the executives of Uber and Lyft and Goldman Sachs, uh, who, are, who are their rivals. So when I say that the class system is polarized broadly between uh, overclass and working class, that does not mean the overclass is united. Uh, they're, they're vicious feuds within factions. Yeah. Overclass, that was true in previous ruling classes of, of you know, the, the aristocrats, the minor aristocrats versus the dukes and the clergy versus the, the landed elites and so on. Yeah. And to the extent that the working class is weak, these intrafactional feuds within the overclass pretty much define our politics. So that takes us on to um, uh, two points, I suppose. The first one is you're very, um, so generally, the way in which populism is described or talked about in public debate, and to some extent also in academic scholarly circles, is as the, you know, it's populists are being powered by the old industrial working class or what's left of it. Um, And so it's understood as a a class phenomenon to a degree. and you're very so, but you're very critical of populism. And there, I mean, for all for all the criticism you mount of the overclass, you're also equally scathing of populism and demagoguery, as you put it in the book. And I wondered if you could summarize what your criticisms of populism are and why you think they're not going to restore um, the fortunes of what or what the working class has lost over the last thirty years. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, so there are two answers. One has to do with the class base of populism. The other has to do with the uh, with their theory of economics. 
Uh, and the two are related because populism in the U.S. and also in Europe uh, has often been associated with small producerism. Uh, so the base is actually not the working class. And to the extent that you had rural populism, it was not the landless farmers. Uh, it was the moderately prosperous small business owners and small grocers and merchants. And I come from a long line of ranchers and farmers and small, you know, Texas was the center of agrarian populism. Uh, but, but they were not destitute people. Uh, you know, they, they felt threatened by the emerging concentrated industrial order. Uh, and I think that is true today. Uh, if you look at uh, the, the national front in France, there's a kind of Pujadist element to it. it yes. Small shopkeepers. Uh, that may have played a role in Brexit. I, I don't know. <clears throat> uh, so, so the assumption that populists are speaking for uh, the, the working class, that is wage earners, hourly wage earners, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to avoid that. Uh, for the most part, they are not pro-labor union. They're not in favor of, uh, of organized labor. Uh, often their program is one of restoring uh, this lost world of small producers, small farmers, small business. Uh, and it turns into defending the small producers against the big producers. And from the point of view of modern industrial and service sector workers, you're actually better off with big producers. They pay better. Yeah. And they're more easy to unionize. Yeah. So the trade union movement and the socialist movement in the United States always opposed small producer populism. They thought, why, you know, we're not going back, you know, to uh, a society of self-employed farmers and blacksmiths. Uh, so the sooner the proletarians uh, have their own organizations, whether it's a socialist party or trade unions, and, and uh, the, the better. Uh, so, so I think there's a nostalgic uh, small producerist element uh, that will doom uh, a lot of these so-called populist revolts. Yeah. And, and what is needed is a third way. It's not small producer populism. Uh, and it's not uh, what I call technocratic neoliberalism. Yeah. Uh, it's, a ver it's a version of uh, corporatism. Yeah, what, what you call democratic of, pluralism. Yeah, that, 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 and, and this was simply, it's, what, it's called social corporatism in, in, uh, in political science literature, as distinguished from Mussolini-type state corporatism. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's tripartism. It means that the state uh, promotes collective bargaining in some form. And it doesn't have to be traditional union form. You can have wage boards. There are institutions like that. So, so before before we get into the, the details of democratic pluralism, because I do want to talk more about it, I just wanted to um, take issue with some of the claims you make about the um, about the kind of features of this class war between the overclass and the working class. So we've, we've talked a bit about the you know, how far the overclass is united and what are the kind of fissures that run through it. So well, one thing that struck me in your book is you say it's not a global class war um, because it's inter, you know, to the extent it exists at all, it's internal to nations. And most of your focus is on is on the states in the book. But what struck me was how familiar um, so much of the model that you lay out is um, to 
the case of Britain, but also some continental European countries like France. It's also, I mean, so many of the names you talk about with respect to the overclass or the big kind of corporations are also very, you know, they're familiar to people all over the Western world, like Uber um, uh, or, you know, the big, the big banks, for instance, will all have their bases in major urban metropoles. Um, and you also talk about the transatlantic establishment. So isn't that enough to on those connections and the uh, the way in which the overclass thinks of itself, particularly its kind of cosmopolitan, uh, you know, its cosmopolitan detachment from merely kind of national or parochial concerns, on isn't that enough to be able to talk in terms of a global class war? That there's enough commonality across Western states that that is effectively a global class war. Well, I I think the comparison is if you go back to the older elite, the transatlantic Euro-American aristocracy, you were patriciate. They, they also you know, learned French and, and they shared, they dressed the same, whether they were in Virginia or Mexico City or St. Petersburg. Uh, you know, they, they lived in a common culture quite distinct from their servants and their tenant farmers. And they traveled you know, back and forth. Sometimes they were mercenaries and worked for other uh, monarchs. Uh, but at the same time, you had constant warfare and diplomatic rivalry among these states. So, so I'm perfectly willing to say that there is this kind of cosmopolitan uh, neoliberal elite on both sides of the Atlantic and to some extent in East Asia and Latin America. As long as you, you acknowledge that doesn't mean that the nation states that they run do not are not rivals with each other. Yeah, and uh, and the U.S. Europe situation is is not the best model because Europe remains, as we are seeing now with the Ukraine crisis, a military protectorate of the United States. Yeah, and so so I think if you look at Japan, South Korea, and so on, you know, the, there's very definitely. Uh, uh, a sense of uh, national rivalries yeah. and, a, and a desire to have national economic and industrial independence at the same time that in terms of the shows they watch and their clothes and their shopping, the, the elites are very similar. Does that answer your question? It does. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, that's, I mean, you know, I agree with you about the, you can't eliminate the, um, the reality of those international rivalries well, let me make one more, more point in this connection. Uh, if you look at the, the top 10 or 100 firms uh, in the world by capitalization, by various measures, and uh, UNCTAD, U-N-C-T-A-D, agency does this, uh, the vast majority are from the three largest, most populous uh, nation states, apart from China and India, or, or developed nation states. The United States, Japan, and Germany. Yeah. Britain is overrepresented in insurance and finance, as you would expect. Uh, but for the most part, the, there's a correlation between the scale of an industrial capitalist country uh, and its domination of global markets. And the link uh, is something called the transnationality index. Uh, what that is, is the percentage of sales of a multinational that are in its home market. And the most successful industrial corporations 
there's some difference in IKEA. There's some that are based in very small countries, but the dominant multinationals tend to have somewhere 30, 40% of their sales in their own home market. So Daimler-Benz is like half in Germany, half in the rest of the world combined. Yeah. It's true for other countries as well. So, so when you break, and then if you look at boards of directors, as I have, uh, Yes, there are some immigrant boards of directors and some expatriates, uh, but for the most part, the vast majority of major corporation boards are from the same nationality of, of the company where it originated. Now, the company may uh, be incorporated in Panama and you know, it may use the double Dutch Irish tax <laughs> loop, yeah. so, so it may be global on paper, but sociologically, I think we live in a world of not just uh, uh, separate nation states, but but dominant great powers and then small countries. And when people talk about global capitalists, I think they're really talking about American and German and and Japanese and, and uh, British and French. Yeah, who are still quite rooted in their nation states. Before talking about where this um, class war might be taking us, you in the new class war book, your periodization is quite stark, um, where you talk about how the class war follows on from the Cold War. Um, and I wondered if you, we've touched a bit upon this in the beginning when you talked about the kind of Nixonian um, or the Reaganism at the end of the Cold War was a detour from what emerged under Nixon. Um, so I wondered if you could talk about it a bit more, but also I wonder if that doesn't overstate the solidity of the New Deal state um, from the 1930s to the 70s or the 80s, um, because it's not as if it's a period that is free from industrial strife or labor militancy. I mean, quite the opposite. You know, so we've seen that in all the major developed countries, you see the crash of labor militancy measured in terms of um, whether measured in terms of union membership or um, days lost to strikes, you know, that seems to, so what I'm, what I'm saying is I suppose in the, in the period that you call the class war, we see the elimination of industrial conflict as a major factor of life in developed states. Whereas the period that you characterize as the cold war, we actually see a lot more actual class conflict in terms of, um, industrial strife in terms of unions and bosses squaring off against each other. So I wondered, those are the two questions. How does the class war emerge from the Cold War in your terms? And does it not overstate the solidity of class relations in the Cold War era? Yeah, I don't want to overstate it. In, in the new class war, it's a 30,000 word essay. And I'm, you know, summarizing, you know, uh, both Europe and the US. So it's from a very if, if we go down into detail, uh, there was a business uh, counter-revolution beginning in the late 40s and 50s against uh, uh, the New Deal order in the United States. Uh, I do think there, there, there's a radical break that comes with the globalization of labor markets. Uh, and this is a, you cannot ex understand what has happened uh, since uh, 1989, except in terms of that. Uh, so let's do a counterfactual. So imagine that the Cold War had never ended. That is, the USSR is, is still there. The Warsaw Pact is still there. Germany is divided. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, would there have been 
the opening, particularly of the labor markets of China and India and Mexico. Uh, and, and regardless, I don't think it's even regardless of regime, um, most 20th century industrial nation states, they could be authoritarian states like, you know, Peron's Argentina or Vargas's Brazil or, the, or you, know, uh, uh, you know, South Korea under the military dictatorship. They were kind of closed hydraulic systems. And the way they worked was uh, the initial market for the infant industries, which were always protected to some degree and sponsored by the nation state. Uh, the national industries, their initial market were the farmers uh, in the countryside. Uh, and they bought the goods from the protected infant industries. And they sent their sons and daughters to the factories in the cities to work. They were the source of labor supply. So that whether you, all of those, those developmental uh, states were involved in import substitution to some degree. Uh, and then as now, these cities did not reproduce themselves. Uh, and the upper classes had, had low fertility rates and they were replaced by this constant stream of uh, young rural people uh, into industrial and, and service centers. Uh, what was made possible by the end of the Cold War, which was a necessary but not sufficient condition. The sufficient condition was the strategic decisions of, in the case of the United States, three countries, Mexico, uh, China, and India, to liberalize their labor markets. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, so Mexico had this quasi-socialist co uh, farm collectives, the ejidos, uh, where, where people were bound. And when they were released, uh, then there was a vast, many of them ended up in the United States, uh, permitting creating a reserve army of labor, to use the Marxist term, that uh, in all one occupation after another, meatpacking, janitorial, et cetera, uh, allowed uh, employers to bust unions and, and often to rely on uh, illegal immigrant labor. Yeah. Now, weirdly enough, the left, which used to fight illegal immigration, has been captured by the nanny-paying professional elite. So, so now they sound like open borders libertarians on immigration, but traditionally the trade unions wanted a tight labor market and were very suspicious about importing workers. Uh, so suddenly, and let's just look at the United States, uh, in their war against the New Deal, U.S. national corporations in the period when the U.S. economy was almost entirely autarkic, very little, few imports, not that many exports, between 1945 and 1970s, uh, the national corporations uh, met, moved in a massive way to non-union Southern and Southwestern states, including Texas, uh, to escape unions and high wages, uh, and often to get subsidies. So the corporations in the United States were using geographic labor arbitrage yeah. uh, to drive down labor costs. So, but the thing is, during that period, they could not invest in Mexico. Right? It was a heavily protectionist state. India was protectionist. China, forget it. You know, Russia, Eastern Europe. Uh, so I, I, I do think when, when those countries, they all adopted more or less at the same time, uh, these developing countries, they gave up import substitution protectionism for the most part. And they decided, okay, well, we solve our problems. We export our surplus population to the U.S. and other industrial capitalist countries. 
But at the same time, we lure their factories. Uh, and the, this is exactly what the, the modernizing but reactionary elite of the American South did between the 1920s uh, and, and the end of the Cold War. Uh, the great migration of the African-Americans and whites, this massive move of poor blacks and whites who've been forced off the land in the South by um, the mechanization of agriculture. Uh, and the Southern elites, not the rural elites, but the Southern business class was happy to see them go. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a, the boat lift from Castro's Cuba, right? It's like get rid of the malcontents, <laughs> go to Detroit. Yeah. Uh, so, so the poor white Southerners, and there were many millions of poor white Southerners, both black Southerners. We forget about the poor white migration to the industrial states in the 20th century. So even as they arrive in Detroit and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh for their new industrial jobs, the industrial corporations are shutting down their factories and moving them to Mississippi and Texas and Arkansas and Arizona to take advantage of the low wages of the workers who remain. Uh, so so in, in a sense, I think uh, labor arbitrage in the globalist era has recapitulated this dynamic that took place between the industrial core of the U.S. Uh, uh, between World War I and the end of the Cold War uh, and the, the uh, agrarian modernizing periphery. And it was a disaster for the Northeastern Midwestern uh, industrial working class. Yeah. Factories left and they were competing for jobs with all of these, let's face it, poor rural white and black Southerners. Uh, it has been a disaster for working classes in the industrial metropoles of, of Europe and the US uh, with the same thing. Now, uh, has it benefited the uh, working classes of these new labor pool countries, Mexico, China, and India? It's benefited their middle classes and their elites. Uh, working classes, I'm not so sure, because uh, if you read the business press, you see one story after another saying that uh, wages are getting so high in China that multinationals are threatening to move their companies up. Yeah. So there's this global race to the bottom. Uh, so when people say China presided over the greatest growth in human prosperity in history. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the premise is that in the absence of this kind of uh, strategy, that at, 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 let's say a neo-protectionist strategy or a more developmental nationalist strategy would not have enriched the working class in the same way. And I'm not convinced. All right, friends, that's the end of this free episode. There's another 40 minutes of interview with Michael Lind, plus our after-party discussion, all available on patreon.com slash bungacast. So it'd be great if you'd subscribe. We'd love to see you there. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.